That reminds me of the times you've preached and taught, Pastor Brown, on the Messianic Banquet. Feels like we got invited to it today. Thank you for that. And we did. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not set his mind on what is false, who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors, then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors, then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of the armies, he is the king of glory. Selah, he is Jesus. We see Jesus, and this is our 275th look at him as we look in Hebrews, and as we are interweaving now 2 Corinthians into Hebrews, and specifically, if you want to turn there, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21, This is what I would call an apocalypse for right now. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ for us right now. We are face to face with an apocalypse, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, who is reality, who is the truth. So far, this is a working translation that I have from the original Greek text, and that's the only place to translate from. For the love of Christ controls us, having judged this. Since one died in inclusive representation of all, then all died. And he died in inclusive representation of all, so that those who live would no longer live themselves, but he who died in representation of them and was raised would live in them and they in him. So from now on, we know no one by any natural means of perception, even if we once regarded Christ in this way, we no longer perceive him that way. Consequently, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is part of the new creation. The old things have passed away. Look, all things have become new. This is what we call the radical alteration of the universal situation. Now everything is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, 
not taking into account their transgressions. And has placed in us the message of reconciliation. Consequently, we are ambassadors in behalf of Christ, God making his appeal through us, as we say, in essence, we urge you in behalf of Christ, receive and acknowledge your reconciliation with God. For in representation of us, the one who knew no sin was made sin so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. This is the apocalypse with which, or better, with whom we are right now face to face. It is this one who died for all and in whom God reconciled the world to himself, whom we will see as he is in a beatific vision, and seeing him as he is, we will be made like him. The apocalypse, as in Revelation, the book of Revelation, is an apocalypse of the Paschal Lamb who was slaughtered. And in the action and passion of being slaughtered, took away the sin of the world. This apocalypse is not the end of the world, as so many read apocalypses, but it's the end of the sin of the world. The true apocalypse that we are face to face with in Jesus Christ is not, nor does it spell the end of the world, but the end of the sin of the world. For look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because it is the end of sin in the world, it is the end of the world as determined by sin. And it's also the termination of a humanity under sin's dominion and control. Now imagine knowing Christ in such a way that you perceive his death as the inevitable and deserved dishonorable death of a criminal, an insurrectionist, a false prophet, and a blasphemer. Imagine if you knew Christ in that way and his death in that way. Then imagine the change that must have occurred in the man who saw him that way, Saul of Tarsus, the murderous persecutor of the church of God. The change that must have occurred in Saul of Tarsus that resulted in his seeing and knowing Christ in such a way that now he knows that his death was a reconciling death for all the world. I call that a conversion. Or is it even more than that? It's the explosive combination of four conversions, a spiritual one, a psychic one, an intellectual, and a moral conversion. Yeah, it's all of these. It's a radical transformation. 
We live in a time in which people are desperate for transition and transformation. And because they're ignorant of this transformation, they are trying to fulfill transitions and transformations in all kinds of distorted ways, harmful ways, even suicidal ways. But with this new perception of Jesus Christ, the apostle, Paul, came under the control of the love of Christ, undergoing a remarkable transformation. He underwent the spiritual conversion that occurs when the love of God is poured out into the heart by the Holy Spirit. People say they're Christians and when they write down on some kind of form what religion they are, they put down Christian, but has the love of God been poured out in their hearts by the Holy Spirit? Does the love of Christ control them? If not, then Christian is not really the proper label, is it? Paul experienced a psychic conversion, and we've studied that a little bit, nothing to be afraid of, by which his very way of being sentient underwent a change. His very human sensibility and way of feeling about people and things was altered in such a way that he could now have fondness and affection for those for whom he once felt hatred and resentment bitter envy. He underwent an intellectual conversion by which he made a clean break from a former way of seeing and perceiving, of seeing everything and everyone, because before he saw as that which he described as katasarka, kind of carnal perception that goes with walking by sight, judging by appearance and superficial means. Judging by what is apparent to the senses or to human reason without revelation. And he thought and perceived by what is conformed to the disinformation of this evil age and of those who are the sons of this age and conform to it. Paul endured a moral conversion by which his scale of values was so radically transformed that his former self-preference gave way to the discernment by which the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord was so supremely valuable as to render all of his former natural, tribal, national, and religious privileges and accomplishments as mere dung and being written off by him as a welcome loss. His suffering of the loss of all things was in reality the experience of that fourfold conversion. This one who died for all and in whom all died, this one, Jesus Christ,
who had been despised and rejected by and large by Israel and by the world in toto was the one faithful Israelite who maintained and fulfilled the covenant between God and Israel and indeed between God and all of humanity by his life of obedience to God which culminated in his death in the death of the cross in which the world was reconciled to God. The radical universal alteration of the human situation that I've been talking about now for a few months is perceived by the absolutely supernatural gift of faith and not by natural perception. The perception of the natural, the psychic or the sarkic person, psychic from sukikos, meaning the natural man or the psychic person or the sarkic person, sarkic from sarks meaning flesh or carnal. Faith is not the natural perception of the psychic person, but it's the absolutely supernatural perception of the pneumatic person, the person controlled by the Holy Spirit in whom the love of God is being poured out. The deep things of God are spiritually discerned, discerned through the power of the Holy Spirit. The totality of the extent of the love of Christ, its depth, its width, its breadth, its length, is grasped only by a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God and seen only by the eyes of an enlightened heart. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. By the same supernatural gift of faith, one becomes assured of things hoped for. Once I was assured of my personal hope for salvation. Now I'm assured of the salvation of the universe and of all humanity. Why? Because the love of Christ controls me in a way that it didn't before. And by the grace of God, I've grasped its width, its breadth, its extent, a little more. By the same supernatural gift of faith, we grasp things that are hoped for in the present things promised by God for what is yet future to us. The great crossover between 2 Corinthians and Hebrews really lies in faith, what it is and what it does. What it is, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Subjectively, it means rather faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's an unqualified assurance. It makes us resolute in this life. Makes our hope firm. It 
makes us have a quiet kind of faith and believing in God that's not always calling to him out of panic or desperation. Don't be afraid, only believe. You remember in the storm, in the boat, the disciples and Jesus asleep in the boat? That's a picture of the church in world occurrence. It's the picture of the body of Christ in the midst of world occurrence. Storms happen in world occurrence to the church. The disciples feared they were going to perish, and so they woke up the Lord, and the Lord wasn't happy about it. Did they do the right thing, waking him up? No. They woke him up to say, Lord, we're perishing. And Jesus woke up, he stilled the storm, and then he said, do you still have such little faith? <laughs> Humanly speaking, did you really have to wake me up? Song of Solomon 3.5 says, Don't arouse love until it's time. The church is like this little ship on the waters, and so is to tell us thy phalanx. I think of us as a ship. There's been times when I thought the ship was going to sink. Times I cried out in panic, but I finally realized that the Lord is on the boat. The Lord's on the ship. And so, while the ship is storm-tossed and the water's filling the boat, we panic and scream and call out to him and say we're perishing, or do we just faith rest it? Only believe. He would have preferred that they only believe. He said, let's go across to the other side. The boat would go across to the other side. Even if Jesus had remained asleep on a pillow. Was it my pillow? No, it was his pillow. He was asleep on his pillow. Were they right to wake him up? No. Were they right to panic? No. Were they right to shout out, we're perishing, we've had it, this is the end of our little church? No. Later on in Mark, that was Mark 4, 40 and 41, where Jesus rebuked them. And later on in 536, he started off by telling the synagogue ruler whose little daughter had died. Don't be afraid. Only believe. So we're talking about a situation, a radical, permanent, eschatological alteration of the situation of all of humanity and all of creation that already happened. Faith is not only the assurance of things hoped for, but it's the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. The thing that's not seen that we're concerned with here is that when one died, 
for all, all died. That's not seen. That's faith is convicted of that, persuaded of that, and convinced of that reality that is not seen. Science can't perceive this. Scientism, with its atheistic arrogance, cannot and will never perceive this. Faith perceives this. Sight doesn't. Rationalism doesn't. Empiricism doesn't. Positivism doesn't. AI can't either. Whatever you do with AI, you can never give it faith. Faith is not artificial but real intelligence. It's the mind of Christ. It's the thinking of Christ. It's one thing you can't give to a robot. You can't make a robot sentient with the mind of Christ, with the affection of an apostle. And he is the great apostle of our profession, our confession. He is the high priest and the apostle, the sent one, the primary sent one. So the totality of the extent of the love of Christ is grasped only by faith, by a faith that works by love. By the same supernatural gift of faith, one becomes assured of things hoped for, things promised by God, for what is yet future for us. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. What's not seen is a radical alteration of the human situation that occurred in Christ. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Do you see by sight a reconciled world? Of course not. You see the opposite of a reconciled world. By faith, I see By faith, we see a world reconciled to God in Christ. Changes our whole perception of everybody and really everything. It changes our perception of world occurrence and we don't panic as the church in the midst of world occurrence. Whether Jesus is asleep on the boat or Awake and talking at the top of a hill. What matters is that he is with us. And his omnipotent love holds everything together. So what faith is, is Hebrews 11.1. 1. What faith does is 2 Corinthians 4.8. We look not at things which are seen, which are transient, evanescent, passing by the boards. But we look at the things that are not seen, the things that are invisible. And those are eternal. Things hoped for is a radical change of condition that's about to happen, that will happen when the great archpriest appears a second time and brings salvation to a waiting creation. A change of condition. That's actually our bodily condition, for we wait for a Savior from heaven. He's called a Savior from heaven. 
who shall come and change these bodies of humiliation, change them. Transform them into bodies of glory like his own. And he does this by the exactly the same omnipotent love and power by which he makes everything subject to himself. And that's a saving subjection, not a condemning or coercive subjection, but a saving subjection. Correlates with a time when every tongue will confess. And that means worshipfully, not coercively. Every knee will genuflect, willingly, not forcibly. I don't know whose idea of God came from forcibly making every knee bow. That's not God. That's more like a dictator. That's not Jesus. He didn't say, Thomas, you better worship me. Thomas simply said, my Lord and my God. It was voluntary. It was worship. Someday all will say that about Jesus Christ. All without exception. You say, well, that, I'm a Christian and that's in, not in my wheelhouse. Well, make it in your wheelhouse. Be reconciled to God because you're a Christian who is not reconciled to the fact that the world has been reconciled to God, by God, in Christ. The church needs to be reconciled with the message of reconciliation. my neighbor said, are you a Christian? I'd have to say, if I lived next to them for five or six years, I'd say, I don't know, you tell me, am I? What do you think Christ is? Well, I think Christ is love. I think he's gracious. I think he's merciful. I think he has great, magnificent compassion. Well, if I'm a Christian, that means I'm a Christ-like person. So I'll ask you, you think I'm a Christian? If you say so, I'll put it down on the form. If you don't, I'll just say agnostic. Not because I'm agnostic, but because I don't know if I'm a Christian. My neighbor said he wasn't sure. Now, am I in Christ? Yeah. Is Christ in me? Yes. Am I reconciled to God? Mm Mm-hmm. And so is my neighbor, even if he or she does not believe. Because if it depended upon human individual response, well, that would be a reason to cry out, we perish. All of 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21 is about the universal change of the human situation achieved by God in Christ. Just as 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 57 is about the alteration of the human universal condition that is to be achieved by God in Christ in the general resurrection. Subjectively speaking, then, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of invisible realities. The sum total of things hoped for is Jesus. The sum total of invisible and eternal realities is Jesus. When we see Jesus, we are looking at that which is invisible, the invisible God 
made visible in his incarnation, made visible again in his manifestation through the church, the body of Christ, said to be Christians by certain witnesses. <laughs> Therefore, it says, as things now stand, we are not yet seeing everything in subjection to him. But we see Jesus, who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, so that far from God, the angels are close to God. He became lower than the angels so far from God, very far from God on the cross. So far, he said, why have you forsaken me, God? Far from God, he would taste death for everyone. He tasted death for everyone. When one died for all, then all died. He tasted death for everyone. We see him crowned with glory and honor because he's the Lord of glory. The gates are open. What gates? The gates of Hades open for him, for one thing. And he came in and he let captives go free. He took captives. He took captivity captive. Look, I've got the keys of Hades. The gates of Hades opened up for me. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. The way it should be is the church should not be afraid of death, but death ought to be very afraid of the church. Because it's the witness against death. It's the witness of life. For we who are dead in sins were made alive together with Christ. For by grace are you saved through faithfulness, not your faithfulness, not your personal faith, sorry, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It's the gift of God, and so is the faith that he gives us to perceive these things. Not yet seeing the change of condition, which will happen in the bodily resurrection and the universal transformation when everything is summed up in Christ, not seeing that change of condition yet. Faith is the assurance that it will occur. And nevertheless, we see Jesus. Seeing Jesus with the eyes of faith, we see the things hoped for. For Christ Jesus is our hope, and we see things not seen. For Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Objectively speaking, Jesus is the sum of the hope for things in the unseen reality of God himself. He is the unseen reality of world history, of all of humanity, of all things in the heavens on earth. We live in the light of both the unseen alteration of the situation which happened at the cross and the hoped for and yet unseen alteration of the condition of all humanity. Faith perceives both. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the universal change of condition but it's also the conviction of things unseen, the universal change of situation. The whole human race is now situated before God in a way that you don't see. You see the sinfulness of man, I do too. I see my own sinfulness first. Very difficult to judge other people.
But now by faith I see a reconciled world. Like the song says, the vilest offender reconciled to God. Who was the vilest offender? Saul of Tarsus. He's a man who knows what he's talking about. Because he said, in essence, I'm an example of the grace and faith, faithfulness and mercy of Jesus Christ. I'm an example to everybody else, meaning if he saved me, he saves everybody. If he can save me, he can save everybody. If he has saved me, he has saved all. And when he saw Jesus of Nazareth on the outskirts of the highway into Damascus, where he was headed to persecute the body of Christ in Damascus, he saw in that face the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, glory that will one day fill the whole earth, glory that already to the angel's perception fills the whole earth. And Jesus of Nazareth didn't say to him, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting and welcome to hell or you're going there. No. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. I have a commission for you to be the chief apostle of the church with a ministry of reconciliation. For you see, yes, you were included in my reconciliation of the world. So nobody better I can think of to announce it. So what a time to live in history. We live between the radical alteration of a situation that happened in his death and burial and resurrection, all one event, and between that and a radical change of condition that's going to happen when he transfigures the entire universe, removes entropy from the almost limitless universal creation, resurrects the dead, saves the whole universe from the effect of sin. Makes a new creation of all things for eternal life. When God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, Christ was sacrificing himself. He appeared once in the termini of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he who appeared once at the termini of the ages, the end of one, the beginning of another, at the cross. He put away sin itself by becoming sin himself. You see, if you put 2 Corinthians 5.21, that's why I must interweave these two. Because 2 Corinthians 5.21 interweaves perfectly and elegantly with, second, with Hebrews 9.26. Now once at the termini of the ages, he appeared to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And having borne the sin of many, and we've shown that many means all, he will appear a second time bringing salvation to those who wait for him. And you say, who are, see, he only brings salvation to those who wait for him. Yes, and the whole creation waits for him, whether it knows it or not. Blend Hebrews 9.28 with Romans 8.19 to 23 sometime. 
You see, it's through blending and interweaving and mixing and elegantly weaving together all of the scriptures that have given me this insight. It isn't coming from a book I read or from books I've read. And I was a little rash last week when I said I'm done reading all, I'll read a lot of different theologians. I was exaggerating because I was a little bit frustrated with a lot of people who write theology don't write correctly. So I have to glean. So I'm not done with everybody. I just had about 400 books brought over from my library so that my third floor won't sink into the basement. And thanks to our resident librarian, Dan Santilli, they're being put in order over here. But it's been the interweaving of the scriptures, the word of God that has given me this conviction and giving, given me this perception of a radical change of situation that happened in Christ's death and of a radical change of condition that we expect because of his resurrection from the dead and with him all of creation. And so, we live in the light of both the unseen alteration of the situation and the hoped for and as yet unseen alteration of the condition of all of humanity and all of creation that is to be universally manifested when Jesus, who appeared once at the termini of the ages to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself, will appear a second time bringing salvation. And what is the salvation that he brings? Nothing more and nothing less than the manifestation of what occurred in his death and resurrection and the affecting of the omnipotence of his love, the change of condition, even of our bodily condition. And what is the last judgment but a manifestation of his first coming? where he endured the wrath of God against sin by becoming sin. He causes everything to be brought under his feet by his omnipotent love. That's why the scripture says that from heaven, where we are already citizens, we expect a savior, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in the light of the already affected change of situation and in the light of the future change of condition. It's a wonderful time to be alive. And we live by faith and hope and especially love. Especially love. The greatest of these is love. The love of Christ that drives us, impels us to make our appeal to the world. And this brings us to another crucial theme. We are an apostolate of Christ, serving as those delegated by Christ as God makes his appeal through us. It doesn't say as if God makes his appeal through us, be reconciled to God in 2 Corinthians 5.20. It says God makes his appeal. In fact, the the complete Jewish Bible says we are certain God makes his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. 
God always speaks in already finished realities. Tetelestai, or Tetelestai Phalanx Affirmation 8. Remember, we began with 10 affirmations. The eighth is we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our eighth affirmation. Or better, God makes his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. We are representatives of Christ as God appeals through us. Paul's speaking for himself, but he's speaking in a plural because he's deliberately associating himself with others who are ambassadors of Christ, whether in the first or the 21st century. That's his way of associating himself with you and with me. We are representatives of Christ as God appeals through us. We who have aligned ourselves to the reality that is Jesus simply urge the world or individuals in it to align themselves with that reality. Now the Mirror Bible, I try not to rely too much on that because it's so good on the commentary that it would be tempting to just go, always go with Francois on a lot of things. Not, a, not everything. But the Mirror Bible puts this well as to the sense in 2 Corinthians 5.20b. He says, our lives exhibit the urgency of God to persuade everyone to realize the reconciliation of their redeemed identity. Our lives exhibit the urgency of God to persuade everyone to realize the reconciliation of their redeemed identity. That's what he says. Translate 2 Corinthians 5.20 as. It's true that our identity has been redeemed. It's true. Our, and by our, I mean all the identity of all humanity has been redeemed. From Adam, in whom all are condemned, to Christ, in whom all are justified. But we still await the redemption of our bodies. If you think yours is already redeemed... I have sad news for you. It's not sad news, but it is for you, because it ain't yet. Romans 8.23 puts it in the future. Ephesians 4.30 does too. Until then, until the redemption of our bodies, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, he's called in Ephesians 1.13. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of promise precisely because God promised that this spirit would be poured out on all flesh. He's also called the spirit of promise in Ephesians 1.13 because he is the down payment on the promise of our redeemed human bodies. Being justified as a result of the permanent alteration of the human situation before God, we await the permanent alteration of our bodily condition. The redemption of our bodies. If you're not content with your body or your gender as it is, don't change it. Don't try to change it. A transition is coming. The redemption of our bodies, which is the essential part of the summing up of everything in Christ. It's the apocalypse of the sons of God. In his commentary on this verse, Francois de Troyes, the 
translator of the Mirror Bible, says this in his comment. Be reconciled could not be translated become reconciled. Do in order to become is the language of the Old Testament. The language of the New Testament is be because of what was done. I would say even better, be what you are. Recognize, align to the reality of your reconciliation. Otherwise, it's a terrible contradiction. God was in Christ reconciling the world, so we go to the world and say, be reconciled, as if God didn't already reconcile them. Of course, he already reconciled the world. So what we're saying is, be aligned to this reality of your reconciliation. There's a lot of anger in the world today that results from people not knowing that they're at peace with God already. They're at peace with God. In his comment, he also helpfully brings into a comparison from Luke 15, 28 to 31, where the waiting father says, not to the prodigal, but to the elder brother, my child, you always were with me, and all that I've ever had has always been yours. That's kind of like what we're saying to the world. You're already reconciled to God. I also consider what Jacques Ellul said, I studied him all the way back in Bible college in the 70s and never realized that he said this. But Andrew Goddard wrote an article about him and said that Jacques Ellul is insistent that the church is not offering the world a means to the end of salvation, a technique for getting saved. It is proclaiming, bearing witness to, a done deal. Famous evangelists bring a message by which they give you the means to the end of salvation and leave it with you. If you're not willing to come down here in front of your friends, your drinking buddies, and your this and that, well, maybe you won't really be saved. Are you sorry for your sins? I mean, really, really sorry. If you're not sorry enough, there's not really repentance there, you see. I'm trying to tell you the means of your salvation. Will you promise to follow Jesus even to become a martyr? Oh, sure. I'm right there already. Yeah. Yeah. That's the means of your salvation. Let me tell you what a true evangelist does. The true evangelist does not offer the world a means to the end of salvation. It proclaims a done deal. We don't say... Be, believe and you'll be reconciled. We say, you've been reconciled, now believe it. That's what transforms people. That's the kind of transformation that people don't quit on because later they find out they can't follow Jesus like they promised the evangelist they would do in front of all their drinking buddies. So again, he's insistent. Monsieur Elul, I am totally in agreement with you. The church is not offering the world a means to the end of salvation, a technique for getting saved. It is proclaiming or bearing witness to a done deal. There's no more profound declaration of scripture than is found in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 
makes me ask the question, then who in the world will go to hell? Who in the world did he not reconcile? I can tell you who. I know some dictators from the 20th century. Oh, really? Christ's love isn't that far then. It doesn't extend that far, does it? Goddard also recalls that Jacques Ellul recalls a story of Barth's. I haven't found it yet. Barth's book is, the book I'm reading by Barth is 10,000 pages and has 250,000 quotes of the Bible in it. It's called Church Dogmatics. But he recalls that Barth told a story once, Bart, that everyone has received a sealed letter from God. Now, in that sealed letter, he says, You've been rec- I've reconciled you to myself. You're my friend now. You're not my enemy. It's a sealed letter from God. But only Christians have opened it. We opened it. <laughs> we read it. So we're just going around to the world saying, this letter's to you too, you know. You've been reconciled to God in Christ. Be reconciled to God doesn't mean be reconciled to him. You've been reconciled to God. Be reconciled to that reality. Line up with that. Believe it. So he tells the story that everyone has received a sealed letter from God. But a Christian is the only one who's opened it and read it. That's the way it is in reality. Every person is loved by God, but Christians are the only ones who know it. So without becoming a Gnostic, there are things we know that the world doesn't know. But it's not an esoteric knowledge that we hold to ourselves, and you've got to come in and get initiated to the secret. It's a secret we want the whole world to know. Yes, we know. We have a knowledge of God that the world does not have, and that's the whole reason why the world acts the way the world acts. We have a knowledge that the world has been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. You know what our message is? And this is my take on the whole thing. I believe that our message is an echo of Tetelestai. Done. It's finished. Our message is the echo of the voice of our Savior who spoke from the cross and said, it is done. That's our message to the world. That's our evangelistic message. It is done. You've been reconciled to God. If people are going to drop their sinfulness, it's when they realize that, not when they're told to drop your sinfulness. (laughs) Stop being sinful. Sure. We don't even know how sinful we were until we know God reconciled us to God in Christ, not imputing our sins to us. So what we have is the word of reconciliation that we have planted in us is the echo of Tetelestai. It's the same voice, Jesus' voice, echoing through us. It's God in us, for Jesus is God, making his appeal. To the world. We've all been reconciled to God in Christ. Receive that new reality. Realize your reconciled identity. The same idea obtains in Romans 5, 10, and 11. It reads like this, my translation, for if while we were sinners, enemies rather, we were reconciled to God. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his son's death, 
then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Not only that, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received that reconciliation. So it's more like you've been reconciled, receive that reconciliation, not be reconciled as if God didn't already reconcile you. I'd like to think, and I hope at the end of my life, I'll be able to say to the Lord, Lord, my ministry in this church called Tetelestai, my ministry has been an echo of the word of your son from the cross. Tetelestai. Much more being saved by his son's life. That's where we are now. It refers, one, to the indestructible life in which the risen Jesus makes intercession for us to save us completely. Much more being saved by his life. Romans 5.11 sounds a lot like, make that 5.10, sounds a lot like he's at the, he is in an indestructible life making intercession to save us completely. And secondly, it reveals even more profoundly, it refers to the fact that his life is now our life. Colossians 3, 4. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So once again, our appeal to the world is an appeal made in behalf of Christ, or an appeal that God makes in us to them. Realize and acknowledge your part in the radical alteration of the universal human situation that occurred when Christ died for all. That happened all within a thing called world occurrence. Within world occurrence, there was an event that happened within world occurrences, within world history, an event in which a Jew, a prophet, was crucified as a criminal with two other criminals on a hill called Skull Hill. It was within world occurrence. But within world occurrence, something happened far more extensive and significant than world occurrence itself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That reconciliation act began with his incarnation, with his birth. And he suffered throughout his life, but it culminated at the cross when God was in Christ reconciling the world. Father, forgive them. Reconciling the world to himself. Now, instead of doing what I was going to do, I just want to do another little hint that kind of dropped on me this week. Speaking of faith, speaking of people who live by faith, people who look to the invisible. I thought of Moses in Hebrews 11.27. It says that Moses endured. He went through what he went through. That's not just 40 years with a complaining people. It's 40 years on the backside of a desert, plus 40 years wandering through the desert. Moses endured, it says, as seeing the invisible. It doesn't say seeing him who was invisible, but seeing the invisible. Faith 
is the means by which we see what's invisible. Now, of course, it does mean him who is invisible, but it simply says Moses endured seeing him who is invisible. But it also says about Moses that he left Egypt, and that whole story about Moses starting around 1124 to 27, and even following past that, it says that he left, he abandoned Egypt, he left it behind. And it said he did not fear the wrath of the king, the king's anger, Pharaoh's anger. Pharaoh claimed to be divine. He was a king. It says Basileus, it doesn't say Pharaoh, it says Basileus or king. He did not fear the wrath or the angry reaction of the king. So the secret of Moses' long endurance is that by faith he saw the invisible. By faith he left Egypt behind, not dissuaded by the fear of the visible king. That's the whole point. He saw the invisible. The whole point there is Basileus, the king. He saw the invisible king who reigns above world occurrence. And so he did not fear the king who reigns within world occurrence and what the king can do. They can kill you, they said. Don't fear him who can kill the body, Jesus said. Big deal. So you can end my life. Wow, you can pull a trigger. It's hardly omnipotence. God can raise me up from the dead. You can't. Now, in 1 Timothy 1.17, and why did my mind fly from there, from Hebrews 11 to there? I don't know. Maybe because the Spirit likes to do things like that. It says, now unto the king immortal, the king of the ages, the eternal king, immortal and invisible, be glory and honor forever. The only God. Pharaoh may say he's God, but there's the invisible king who is the only God. The only real God. So I put these two together and realized that Moses endured because he saw an invisible king, so he did not fear the wrath or the angry reaction of the visible king. Both the invisible king and the visible king, Pharaoh, claimed to be deity. Only one is. Moses endured all that he had to endure fearlessly because he did not fear the wrath of the king who reigned within world occurrence by God's permission, but because he reverenced and feared the Lord of glory, the invisible king who reigned and overruled above world occurrence. I think you might be getting the point about how we should be thinking in the coming years as our nation goes through things that you and I and our parents and grandparents never imagined we would endure. 
tyranny comes a lot of ways, most of them subtle. Sometimes the subtlest tyranny has happened. I said in 9-11, during 9-11, I said there are, two twin, there are twin towers and they both begin with T, terrorism and tyranny. And I said this, tyranny is a lot worse than terrorism. And it's a much more mendacious and evil thing. And so we should understand that there is an invisible king overruling above world occurrence, even as there are tyrannical kings ruling within world occurrence. So note the connection between Hebrews 11.27 and 1 Timothy 1.17 by Gezereshawa, simply using this word basileus in the Greek. And I'll just write that up here. B-A-S-I-L-E-U-S. Basileus, king. Gezereshawa is the rabbinical way of exegeting. The word basileus is used in Hebrews 11.27, but it's also used in 1 Timothy 1.17. So by the use of this Gezerah Shava using Basileus for king, we could be justified in translating Hebrews 11.27 this way. By faith, Moses left Egypt behind, not deterred by fear of the visible king, for he remained resolute while seeing the invisible king. That's what's... Fill, that's what fills in the blanks, the ellipsis here. Moses was not focused on world occurrence and the politics and power of transient earthly authorities who rule in this age. Even those who, like Pharaoh, claim the status of deity. Instead, by faith he remained resolute, looking to the only true and real God who overrules earthly authorities and world occurrences by his providence. Nebuchadnezzar might say that all the inhabitants of the world belong to him, but Nebuchadnezzar is a liar. Psalm 24 tells me that all the inhabitants of the world belong to God that all Israel will be saved, that God shows mercy to all, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and that even some king who claims to be divine has been reconciled to God and only needs to know it, like Nebuchadnezzar woke up one day and realized it for himself, even Nebuchadnezzar. He said there's only one God above all the gods and one king above all the kings, and it's that God of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar would have considered Daniel, his neighbor, to be a Christian. Now, sometimes we're right to call on the Lord in difficult situations. Most of the time we're not. I have to admit, I spend a lot more time believing than I do praying. Somebody will say, would you pray for this? And I'm thinking... Yes, now I think, no, I don't think, I think I'm already past praying. I think I'm believing already. And so there are times when 
we call on the Lord in difficult situations. More often, however, we're right simply to believe. The disciples were not right to wake up the Lord. Should we wake up the Lord? Only if there's an emergency. There's an emergency. The boat is filled with water. The boat is being rocked by waves. We're all going to die, including him. Should we wake him up? If there was one person with, a, with faith on that boat, deep faith, they would have said, nah, it's not, no, don't wake him up yet. They would have had the privilege of believing in the sleeping Christ and watching the storm abate and the waters abate and the winds die down and the boat be found on the other side. So, likewise, the church will never perish despite what threatens it in world occurrence, despite what threatens it from within. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. It's not the church that should be afraid of death or the gates of Hades. Death should be afraid of the church because the church is the new covenant community in union with Jesus, the Lord, the King of glory. So even the gates of Hades had to open to him, and they did, and the king of glory came in, and he did, and he took all captivity captive with him. And that's a metaphorical way of speaking, that he did away with death. And the church is the witness against death in this world. If the church is acting like the church, instead of panicking at every turn, I've seen times, and so have some of you in this church, this little Tetelestai ship, this little boat, was apparently going to be shipwrecked. By sight, I gave up on it. By sight. But I have a little thing called faith that was given to me by God. And yet this little ship endured and sailed on because Jesus is aboard, that's all. Jesus is aboard. If we'd have called out to him and said, Lord, we perish, we would have been wrong. Because we would have been operating by sight. We would have been wrong to wake him. Better to take this advice, Song of Solomon 3.5. I mentioned it before. My mind also flew to this as I was preparing this message. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Love is stirred up when we realize that one died for all and all died. When we make that judgment, love is stirred up in us. Not before then. Love isn't really real until we judge that one died for all and all died. We don't love all of humanity until we first judged that one died for all and that when he died all died in him otherwise we're waking up love before it's time love is stirred up when we realize that when one died for all all died Jesus is love God is love Jesus is God Jesus is love The disciples woke him up before he was pleased to wake up. And they all got the rebuke from him. Why are you fearful? He didn't say, oh, thanks for waking me up. We could have perished. 
He said, would you wake me up? Why are you still fearful? What's wrong with you people? You have faith this small still? Come on. That's what he said. If we wake him up, he'll be so proud of us. Because we depend on him to stop the storm. Nope. Lord, we perish. Why are you fearful? Do you still have, in fact, he was harsher. Do you still have no faith? You don't, you're still praying about something that you already should be convinced I'm going to do. How come you have no faith? But we pray. Yeah, how come you pray and have no faith? How come you still have no faith? Doesn't faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of God? What have you been listening to? Later on, Jesus says to the synagogue leader, he starts right off with this one. He says, don't be afraid, only believe. Let me get that out of the way first. I'm saying to all of us today, don't be afraid of what's occurring in the world today. Don't be afraid. I hate it when people come on and say, because our children had to wear masks and they're in lockdown, their lives are destroyed. Who the hell said their lives are destroyed? There's a bump in the road that they'll overcome and be better for it later down the road. Don't say their lives are destroyed. They get on the news and they think they're being compassionate by saying, proclaiming that people's lives have been... No, they haven't. You have no faith while you say, our thoughts and prayers... Leave your thoughts and your prayers with yourself if you have no faith. I don't want your faithless prayers or your thoughts. Oh, I just got depressed. What happened? One of your thoughts just came into my mind. <laughs> Okay, no, I'm only kidding. I'm not talking to anybody in particular here. I better close. And the, today I won't go out this door. There's a hatch here. I just go phoom, right down the hatch and slides all the way up Coxcomb Hill into Oakmont, right into my house. I'll say this, though, as, as a pastor. I guess I'd have to even call myself a leader. I don't know. Am I? Only believe. Remain resolute in faith. By faith and not by sight, be focused on what is not seen, on what is real and true, not on what is seen. Which may be real or true, but only in its limited way. Or only apparently real and really untrue. Don't be focused on that. Be focused like Moses on the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. And not on the kings of this earth who sometimes rule by tyranny through intimidation and coercion. We're resolute in hope. That's what we are. What are we? Who are we? What is this little ship called the USS Tetelestai? Universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. Well, we hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. 
for he who promised is faithful in Hebrews 10.23. We operate by faith and not by sight in 2 Corinthians 5.7 in the crossover. By faith we focus on the eternal and the invisible, not on the evanescent and merely visible. We focus on the invisible reality who has an, a visible manifestation in the incarnation and in the church. We don't focus on visible things, on world occurrence that has no corresponding and invisible and eternal reality. Contrary to Plato, world occurrence does not have a correspondence with the eternal. It is the opposite of the eternal. The invisible king overrules the rulers of this world occurrence. We focus on the invisible, which has had a visible manifestation in the incarnate word of God, and does have an imperfect manifestation in the new covenant community, and will have a universal manifestation in the universal revelation of Jesus Christ. So we don't throw away our confidence. We add patience to it, resoluteness to it. We're not of the crowd who shrink back through fear and back up into perishing and say we're perishing. We are those of the cadre who have resolute faith leading to the preservation of our souls even within the storms of world occurrence. Amen. That's it. Surprise. We're done. <laughs>